right, everybody, welcome back to our third and final session today. I'm joined here by, by our speaker, Dr. Suzanne Abadian. Um, Suzanne was educated at Harvard, earning a PhD in political economy and government, an MPA in international development, and an MA in, in the anthropology of social change. Her research on the healing effects of long-standing collective trauma and cultural damage has been described by Nobel laureate in economics Amartya Sen as pioneering and highly original. She now has an independent practice where she teaches, speaks and consults internationally on leadership, innovation, culture change and her ARIA principles. Between 2017 and 2019, Suzanne served as a Franklin Fellow at the US State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom. Her portfolio included preventing violent extremism and protecting the rights of religious minorities in the Middle East and South Asia, gender issues, atrocity prevention and cultural restoration. She has also served as a fellow at MIT's Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transformative Values, as well as at Harvard's Center for Public Leadership. Suzanne is also the author of the forthcoming book, Free Me to Love, which explores her own personal experience healing the residues of intergenerational and collective trauma. You can learn more about Suzanne's work at www.suzanneabadian.com. Um, so Suzanne, whenever you're ready, um, just get started. And I'm really excited about, about this one. All right. Just going to turn my camera off. Thank you so much, Niall, for this uh, wonderful opportunity. I'm so grateful to be here with everyone. Um, I, it sounds like you guys have had a wonderful couple of sessions already, and uh, I'm really excited to be part of this panel. So although trauma is as old as history, what we're learning about the healing of trauma remains a frontier. We're all still pioneers, and even more so when it comes to collective trauma. For addressing collective trauma, I found, does not just entail healing individuals, but also addressing institutional and cultural distortions that perpetuate trauma into the future. I'm speaking to you now from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I'm visiting. And I'd like to begin, as I always do, by acknowledging and expressing my deepest gratitude to the generosity of the original custodians of these lands. I thank and call upon the wise elders of the Nipmunk people, ask them to lend their illuminating energies to this discussion and thank them for my safe passage on their traditional lands. May they who have lived through centuries of collective traumas be healed as we are being healed. Let me now share with you a story of another indigenous community and a journey with friends into Ecuador's Amazonian rainforest some decades ago. Some of us had gone there concerned about the survival of indigenous peoples whose lands were being swallowed up by logging interests, paved and polluted by oil and mineral industries. Touched by the plight of these Amazonian communities, some of my friends had gone with ideas of economic development and with checkbooks in hand. Our Amazonian hosts did want our support, but mostly of a different kind. The shamans and elders told us that we could assist best by returning back to our communities and helping our people transform what they called our dream, what we call our fundamental assumptions, aspirations, and worldview. It's out of these dreams that we form and manifest reality, they told us. 
It is we who live in an industrialized North and West that need to change because it's our dream, they told us, that is destroying the earth. Disconnected as we are from ourselves, our spiritual nature, from one another and the natural world. Change our dream and the ripples of that change will affect the whole world. In other words, the shamans ask us to consider the polluting effects of our thoughts and assumptions alongside the carbon emissions generated by our factories and automobiles. What the few remaining indigenous people know that many in our societies have forgotten is that our thoughts, our assumptions, our aspirations, our collective dream, the way we perceive and envision our reality has great power. The world is as you dream it, they tell us. This isn't revolutionary per se. Advertisers and politicians know this and work to shape our beliefs to elicit certain kinds of behaviors from us. Clinical psychologists and social workers also know the importance of transforming and modifying beliefs. This may feel especially dangerous living as we are doing now in a post-truth world where lies masquerade as truths, conspiracy theories reign supreme, and where manipulators attempt to shape the collective dream. The question the shaman posed to us is, at this critical juncture, what are we dreaming for ourselves, the future of our planet, and for all of humanity? So just, I want to stop for a moment, pause, and take a minute and give, ask you to give me your thoughts and comments. Niall, uh, if you can call them out, if you see anything you'd like to call out. What do you think the shamans meant when they said that we in the industrialized North must change our collective dream? What do you think are some of the elements of our collective dream that need changing? Any thoughts? Kindness from Quintus, acceptance and com compassion. Uh, I see our dream is material and capitalistic. It is killing the planet. Capitalism is a quest with a question mark. We need to stop trashing the world. I'm, it's going fast. The material stuff matters. Individualism. Based on greed. Their shamans are calling upon us. Oh, it's moving so fast. I'm having a hard time capturing them. <laughs> now, are you doing a better I'll, job I'll than I am? I'm trying to catch one here. Um, these look really good. Okay. From Sarah um, Greaves, I dream that we come to feel that we are all one as a planet. That we that when we harm the planet, we kill ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, inner connections, then outer connections. Um, we need to consider the consequences of our actions. Uh, relation to nature, we think we are separate. To get away from a materialist view of life, finding meaning in a healthy way, growing our consciousness and its greater connection with the universe, embracing the paradoxes of life. Um, would you want me to keep going or is that, is that enough? No, that's great. God, you, you guys are wonderful. I mean, there's a lot there and uh, I think you've got it in many ways. Um, and I think I read someone saying the shamans are asking us to slow down as has COVID. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your thoughts. And I look forward to having more conversations about it in the Q and A. So I'm going to do a brief exercise with you. I'm going to read two short poems and ask you to pay attention to which you believe best describes this singularly disruptive time period we're living through now, as well as how each poem makes you feel. Uh, so 
Yeah, the slide is up. Um, the first poem is by Kim Rosen. It's called In Impossible Darkness. I'll read it to you. Do you know how the caterpillar turns? Do you remember what happens inside a cocoon? You liquefy. There in the thick black of your self-spun womb, void as the moon before waxing, you melt as Christ did for three days in the tomb, conceiving in impossible darkness, the sheer inevitability of wings. The second poem was written in the year 1855 by the English poet, Matthew Arnold. Wandering between two worlds, one dead and the other powerless to be born, with nowhere yet to rest my head, like these on earth, I wait forlorn. I'm going to ask you now to do a quick poll. Now, can you please uh, put the poll up? And without overthinking it, take a few seconds and indicate which poem best reflects what you believe in this moment about the era we are now living through. <laughs> I love this. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm curious um, what the neithers are thinking. So I'd love to hear about that. Um, but it looks as though at the moment there's 84, obviously for, as you can, I, I think you guys can all see the results, but uh, um, some are saying both. Uh, and I think more are saying Kim Rosen's in, in Impossible Darkness, but there's a good portion uh, that connect with Matthew Ar Arnold's poem. Um, so I'm curious what it also, take a moment and just let me know what it made you feel like these poems and what made you pick the poem you picked. Um, like what are the underlying assumptions and beliefs that made you choose those poems? And also what emotions did the poems elicit? Niall, I can't see the comments now. I can only see the poll. So, um, but there's a good amount of both. The chat. Over the chat, you should be able to see the answers. Yes, I got, I got it now. Thank you. Do you want to read some of the comments? Try. Hmm. Christina's saying um, they both resonated um, with her, the hope in Rosenberg's poem, but also the feeling of loss and uncertainty in Arnold's. We yeah. have one, I believe. And uh, Monica's saying, in a way, both deep hope, but despair too. Yeah. Um, Kim's poem made me feel hope and from dark to light and wings to fly. Arnold was individualistic. Rosen understands the universal feminine principle, which is what inspires life and nature. Moya says the Kim Rosen yes. poem gave me hope. It is beautiful. Yeah, I love that poem. So we, we've got like, we've got loads of answers here, Suzanne. Is that enough or do you want to keep, keep going? 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm reading someone who was saying that the poem shows what Thomas was talking about how the past myths of our culture affect the present. Absolutely. I'm going to talk more about that, actually. That's uh, pretty much the topic of my conversation. So what, um, what do our choices hint about the nature and quality of our dreams for the future at this time? So they, they you know, which, we ch which poem we chose, what we're drawn to kind of affects our dreams for the future. Um, it, this polling just helped me take a temperature reading on how everyone's doing. It's a tough, tough time to be alive for many, a scary, uncertain time. And these two poems, in a sense, reflect varying narratives about the state of affairs, one more pessimistic, the other more likely to lead to expansion and post-traumatic growth. I wanted to take a quick uh, temperature reading on the nature of our assumptions and aspirations here. Our level of hopelessness impacts our collective dream and our capacity to heal and think creative, creatively about solutions. So what does collective trauma, the topic of the day, have to do with any of this? With what the Ecuadorian shamans um, describe as our destructive dreams, the nature of our assumptions, worldviews, and aspirations, and their call for us to change. So I suggest at least two things. First, that collective trauma has the power to distort our collective dream. And secondly, because traumatic events are disruptive, the coming apart and disorder can potentially provide opportunities for us to reorganize ourselves in new, more generative ways. That is, if we use disruptions as a period to assess ourselves honestly, to surface implicit assumptions and reflect on the repercussions of having them, and to actively choose differently, to dream change, so to say, to weed out and transform the ones that no longer serve us, the crisis of trauma that we're now living through can lead to breakthroughs rather than dis disintegration. So my talk will be in two parts. In part one, I'll talk about how trauma tends to distort our collective dream. And in part two, I'll talk about how we can use it as an opportunity to help individuals and our cultures dream change. I have to say that I didn't start off as someone particularly interested in trauma. My interest in trauma was an outgrowth of earlier work on easing poverty and in peace building. In the earlier stages of my career, I started off studying why, so, why it was that so many people struggle under generational poverty and seemingly intractable conflict. I looked for answers across multiple disciplines and as Niall mentioned, eventually got three graduate degrees, including one in cultural anthropology and a PhD in political economy and government. I found, my, you know, I found many explanations, but it wasn't until I did research among North American indigenous communities in the 1990s that I began to understand the damaging ongoing impact of historical atrocities and collective trauma. In my doctoral thesis that I wrote over 20 years ago, I made the case to economists that undigested collective traumas continue to reverberate in many communities with devastating outcomes and alleviating cycles of poverty, violence, and oppression require us to address these underlying issues of collective trauma. There's a Harvard Magazine article that came out in 2008 that describes some of that work for those interested in learning more. As an aside, I want to mention that my interest in work in healing individual and collective trauma was not just a cerebral professional undertaking, but became deeply personal. At the time I began researching indigenous communities stuck in cycles of poverty and violence, coincidentally, I'd begun to have children and was becoming increasingly aware of dysfunctional patterns in my family and in myself. I was seeing some of these same patterns in exaggerated form, but in some of these communities I was researching, uh, but I was also becoming aware of them in myself and those around me. 
And I became powerfully committed to not transmitting them to the next generation. Whatever, whatever age um, your children are, if you've had trauma yourself at that age, the traumas tend to get triggered. And that's what began to happen for me. I experienced trauma from a very young age, and they began to surface when my children were very young. Also, I am Zoroastrian Iranian by birth, the original peoples of Iran, a community that experienced atrocities and genocide over a span of 1400 years. And I was married to someone Jewish whose mother survived Nazi Germany and fathers and whose father's family came out of the Russian pogroms. So here I was awakening to my own personal trauma history, as well as the historical traumas of three different peoples, Native Americans, Zoroastrian Iranians, and European Jews. It was like a perfect storm, like a tsunami hit me. And it took me years to integrate the wisdom they offered. Just to say that what I share about trauma and healing is the result not only of rigorous academic research and work with clients, but also from my own lived experiences. I won't say more about my own personal story here, but I do share it in, in my forthcoming book, uh, Free Me to Love. So to return back to how collective traumas distort what the shamans refer to as our dreams. Let's begin with basics. Uh, here's a, 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 a graphical depiction uh, with uh, time duration on the horizontal, horizontal axis and number of people affected on the vertical axis. As an example of A, of one or a few people affected for a short duration, a car accident is an example of A. An example of C, of larger groups affected for a circumscribed period. Uh, we could think of an earthquake, for example. Chronic childhood abuse and neglect are examples of B, of one or a few people affected by long-lasting traumatic events. Enslavement, war, war and occupation, mass atrocities are examples of D. So my work focuses primarily on the impact and healing of traumas on the right side of this graph of multiple prolonged chronic traumas to both individuals, B, and to groups, D. So we know that people experience something as being traumatic when they feel something precious is at risk and they can do little about it, whether that's something tangible like their life or the life of a loved one, or it could be something more intangible like democracy. In any case, captivity, helplessness, and terror characterize the experience of trauma. Trauma tends to throw individuals into a state of existential crisis, a crisis of faith. They may ask themselves questions like these. How could this have happened to me? Why couldn't I have stopped it? Where were my trusted protectors, parents, police, government officials, authority structure when I needed them? Where was God? People who experience trauma can lose faith in themselves, in other people, and in a higher power. Survivors of trauma can come to feel betrayed and mistrustful, especially those in positions of authority. Sometimes this is because offenders have a power relationship over those they victimize. They can become vulnerable to conspiracy theories, radicalization, and extremist ideology by individuals who take advantage of their mistrust, affirm and accentuate it, give it a target, and set themselves up as a savior. Now, we also know that because of the extraordinary resilience of most people, no blow or series of events in and of themselves are necessarily traumatizing to an individual or have been enduring or have any kind of enduring traumatic impact. Whether an event has enduring traumatic impact depends on at least two interacting variables. 
One, the objective characteristics like the age of the victim or the character, characteristics of the event itself. And two, the individual subjective experience of the events. In other words, trauma is not just about the visceral experience of an event, but it's in part a product of the meaning we make of this experience. Now, Viktor Frankl's classic work, Man's Search for Meaning, gave us this powerful insight about the importance of meaning making in surviving trauma. Now, human beings are amazing creatures. We may differ from, differ from other animals, even the ones closest to us, the apes, because we're fundamentally meaning-generating machines. We like to make meaning out of everything that happens to us, and we create stories to try to explain why these things have happened as they have. In weaving explanations, we make manageable what previously may have felt unmanageable, particularly when telling the story of a traumatic event. A sense of control and power is restored to individuals robbed of these by the experience. Embedded in the stories we author following trauma are a series of assumptions, conclusions we have drawn, or an underlying moral of the story. For example, Sarah grew up in a household where her father was a heavy drinker and regularly beat her mother. Now an adult, she has just managed to escape a violent relationship herself. Working with her, we find that a primary assumption she's had is that men cannot be trusted. Also, she tells us, there's something wrong with me. I always screw up relationships. I don't deserve anything better. These are what I'm referring to as post-traumatic narrative subtexts, PTNs for short. I'll give you more examples in a bit. But just keep in mind that typically people use the word narrative to refer to an explicit story that links events in a particular sequence in time. This happened and then this happened with a beginning and an end. Here I use the term narrative loosely as a shorthand for the underlying subtext of these stories, the underlying meaning drawn, you know, they made from a sequence of events. PTNs, post-traumatic narrative subtexts, are the essential distillation or the significance derived and are a matter of perception and interpretation. In other words, they're, 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 there's a story, and then there's a narrative subtext, the song beneath the words. These hidden narrative subtexts filter reality, but are assumed to be self-evident truths. I distinguish between two broad categories of PTNs, depending on whether they are more or less adaptive. To the extent that narratives or beliefs help address and solve rather than avoid real problems, they can be said to be generative. In other words, the more a narrative generates ways to thrive under changed or challenging environments, the more adaptive it can be said to be. Generative and healing post-traumatic narratives are adaptive in that they acknowledge the trauma that's occurred, but also soothe fears. They're life-affirming, expansive, and they also help restore trust in oneself, in others, and in the possibility of goodness. Healing post-traumatic narratives are integrative in that they assimilate sometimes conflicting renderings of reality. They provide insight, enrich perspectives beyond black and white dichotomies, often providing a richer, more nuanced third way of understanding. Generative post-traumatic narratives bring people to a state of relative neutrality and balance, and they elicit positive states like understanding, compassion, and optimism. Generative PTNs are more likely to lead to post-traumatic growth. So the poem about the caterpillar that we started off with is an example of having generative PTNs. It acknowledges the pain we may be undergoing 
It speaks about liquefying and being in impossible darkness. But it also offers a perspective, a way of interpreting the experience that inspires hope and promises expansion, the sheer inevitability of wings. On the other hand, maladaptive or toxic post-traumatic narratives on the right side of the arrow are those that fan the human fear response and keep our survival instinct on high alert. They fuel a sense of urgency. Danger is all around and vigilance is called for. They keep alive a sense of chronic victimization and are fundamentally blaming of self or others. They tend to be divisive, generating greater measures of mistrust of an other. Maladaptive or toxic PTNs foster pessimism, hopelessness, isolation, and often set people on a path towards re-traumatization of self and others. We know that storytelling and meaning making are not always benign or benevolent then. They have the power to magnify or to ameliorate the effects of a stressful event. I'll soon explain why some are more likely to go down the generative path and others down the more toxic path. And if I don't, make sure you ask me about it. Besides distinguishing between two broad categories of PTNs, adaptive and maladaptive, or generative and toxic, I distinguish between two broad categories of maladaptive meaning making on the right. I think it's on the right. Uh, that is toxic or maladaptive PTNs themselves tend to come in two varieties, disempowered and falsely empowered PTNs. So what characterizes each of these? Disempowering PTNs, post-traumatic narratives, are those that reflect a sense of being seriously flawed, damaged, unloved, unlovable, unworthy, alone, isolated, lacking in support and understanding, helpless, targeted, and unsafe. Disempowerment is what we most typically associate with trauma. But a second type of response to traumatic experiences is to adopt what I'm calling falsely empowered post-traumatic narratives. Those that are grandiose, entitled, irresponsible, blaming, preoccupied with settling scores and getting revenge, categorically condemnatory, judgmental, disdainful, and righteously indignant. The falsely empowered PTNs are inflated and the disempowered PTNs are deflated. While those harboring disempowering PTNs are self-condemning, judging themselves as less than others. Those with falsely empowered PTNs condemn others and see themselves as superior to others. Perpetrators tend to have falsely empowering narratives. Sometimes people can be disempowered in one situation and falsely empowered in another, or even both at the same time. As we're seeing around the world with white supremacists, they have both the disempowered victim narrative about so-called white people and white culture at risk of disappearing at the same time that they have the falsely empowered narrative of entitlement and supremacy. How does this happen that people can have both? Let me give you an example. A male child who is repeatedly beaten by his father receives two lessons simultaneously. By communicating in effect that I am bigger than you and can do whatever I want with you, the father disempowers the child. But at the same time, the boy is falsely empowered by the implicit message and when you get to be an adult man like me, you too can do whatever you want to those who are more vulnerable than you are. This is also an example of how PTNs are transmitted intergenerationally. Even if people are generally functioning well in society, during moments of crisis or traumatic stress, they can fall back on earlier form PTNs as default settings. 
While appearing to be really different, these two varieties of maladaptive PTNs are two sides of the same coin. At heart, both disempowered and falsely empowered PTNs share essential characteristics. For example, these two extremes are different expressions of our survival instinct and the subsequent instinct to fight, to fly, flight, to take flight, to freeze, or to fawn. Although different, they're similar in that they are fear-based and identify with victimization. There's a tendency to blame oneself or another. Also in both forms, life and people are understood in dualistic and hierarchical terms. There are those that are better than and others that are less than. It's essential to note that toxic PTNs are not totally false. In fact, this is the basis of their power, that they are true in part and under certain circumstances. It's true that our demographics and cultures are changing, for example. And as we know only too well, the world can be dangerous. Systems of oppression do indeed exist. People can be deceitful, life can hurt, and parts of us can be broken. However, this is only part of the story, only part of the time. The problem is that PTNs are extreme and are the basis of extremism. Here are some examples of um, post-traumatic narrative subtext. The first sentence is um, PTNs at an individual level, and the second is how they may show up when embedded in a collective narrative. I'll read a few of the examples from the slide in case the text is just small or can't be seen. So the, in the theme danger, for example, the disempowered PTN subtext is, I'm always in danger. We're trapped in a hostile world. Aloneness. No one is here for me. We're all alone in our suffering. Injustice. Life is unfair. God will fail us. Untrustworthiness. I'm untrustworthy. People can't be trusted. Unworthiness. I don't matter. I'm not worthy of love, help, or abundance. Humanity is pitiful, debauched, deserves to suffer. So on. So there's a whole slew of themes um, that I've captured here, but you know, there's many ways of capturing this uh, and multiple strands of disempowered PTN subtext. There's also uh, the next slide is the falsely empowered PTNs. And again, these are for examples of these. I'll just read a couple. Injustice under the theme of injustice. Um, it is only right that I have things my way to have what I want and to do whatever it takes to get it get it regardless of the consequences to God, to others. Part of that is God is on our side. Untrustworthiness as a theme. So the falsely empowered PTNs would say, I'm always right. We are in the right. There's a sense of infallibility. Unworthiness, the theme of unworthiness um, shows up as falsely entitled and grandiose. It's actually false worthy. It's a false sense of worthiness. I alone am special. We are the chosen ones. They are like, you know, cockroaches to be exterminated, so on and so forth. You get, I think you get the idea. Without going to much detail, another way to describe toxic PTNs is to say that they are characterized by a deeply pessimistic explanatory style. The pessimism leaves us convinced that our problems are permanent, pervasive, and personal. Permanence we see in, in always or never statements. For example, we will always be discriminated against or things will never change. Pervasive we see in all or nothing statements. For example, it's all of that category. It's all of those people that can't be trusted, whether it be whites, blacks, men, women, and nothing we can do will ever change things. Personalization refers to making things personal. It's always someone's fault. 
So permanence, pervasiveness, and personalization are another way to identify if you're dealing with maladaptive PTNs. So to summarize, toxic PTNs tend to be predictable and have typical themes. They can become our automatic default settings. And when we return to these thoughts over and over again, the grooves deepen and the thoughts become habitual. Tacit and taken for granted, our cherished beliefs and narratives become like the air we breathe. But in this case, the air is poisoned. These damaging assumptions about the self, others, and the world can become default settings that people return to, particularly in moments of stress. They dangerously motivate behaviors and permeate interpersonal and social interactions. These unspoken destructive narratives are a form of self-hypnosis that keep us enslaved to the past and frozen. We respond not to what is happening right now today, but to something that happened in the past. Because traumatized peoples are often frozen in the past and not present to this moment's reality, they are frequently unable to solve today's problems and enjoy today's blessings. Trauma handicaps our creativity in other ways as well. Toxic PTNs act like perceptual filters. They allow in some light, but not all, letting certain kinds of information be absorbed but not others. Specifically, they filter out perceptions of unfolding events and interpretations that contradict them. Karen Rivich calls this the Velcro Teflon effect. Information or evidence from the outside that fits one's narrative subtext sticks like Velcro, while those that don't glide right off like Teflon. In other words, our perceptual capacities are limited and even distorted by trauma. In the end, we come to notice and see those things that confirm our stories, stories that may reflect only partial truths. This is important because our assumptions and narratives become powerfully self-referential and self-reinforcing. In other words, because we see the world through the distorted filters of these PTNs and act as though they are true, there's a danger that we will elicit from the world those behaviors that in turn support our narratives. Here's an example of what I mean. I've already mentioned Sarah. When she was a child, she saw her overburdened mother being battered by her father. Now, as an adult, her life is run by a variety of toxic PTNs around the theme men are not to be trusted and women always get used. Sarah's now being courted by Henry, who has returned early from work in order to prepare her a surprise dinner. With every one of Henry's loving acts, Sarah's distorted filter is being challenged. But her toxic PTNs have never been fully surfaced. Her assumption that Henry is inherently untrustworthy, has not been fully articulated, let alone questioned. Today, Sarah's had a rough day at the office with her boss, who happens to be male and a bit of a bully. She arrives home to delicious aromas and a romantically set table. She's testy and things begin to escalate until she not only is ungrateful, but is accusatory. If you think you're going to get a night in bed out of me for cooking me a meal, you've got another thing coming. Henry finally explodes, slams the door as he leaves. He gets drunk that evening, spends the night with one of Sarah's friends, and Sarah's filters and behaviors, in effect, helped to elicit in Henry the behavior she expected. What she did not know about Henry was that as a child, no matter how hard he tried to please his mother, and he tried hard, he tried, he tried very hard to, and desperate for his, her love and approval, his mother was hypercritical of him. So Henry had his own set of pain-filled PTNs that complemented Sarah's. This isn't about placing blame, of course, but about breaking patterns and dynamics. 
caught in seeing the world through the filter of PTNs, we become less creative and are in effect blind to the real opportunities that exist for things to be different. We don't take advantage of opportunities to, to connect that are there or to derive support or tap into resources and to heal. The final point about the power of toxic PTNs is that they can be contagious, passed to others laterally and intergenerationally. For example, the American researcher Janie Victoria Ward distinguishes between two types of messages that African-American parents pass down to their girls to help them cope with the realities of racism and patriarchy. Both kind of messaging are intended to support black daughters to face reality, but do so in very different ways. The first type of messaging, Dr. Ward calls tongue of fire truth telling, which in her own words, she describes as being harsh, tell it like it is negative critiques of the world some black mothers inflict on their daughters to unmask illusions and ostensibly build character and psychological strength. But it doesn't. Instead, it breeds disconnection, despair, and isolation, and can be further traumatizing. These girls can come to believe that racism is intractable and generates maladaptive and self-destructive behavioral responses like losing interest in school or internalizing negative stereotypes about themselves. In my terminology, I would say that embedded in the tongue of fire truth-telling are variations on maladaptive PTNs like why people can never be trusted, men can never be trusted, the system will always be stacked up against us, etc. The other type of messaging Dr. Ward characterizes as resistance-building truth-telling, where the messaging still confronts the realities of racism while also being affirming of the individual's potential and their connection to a collective movement. They are imbued with generative PTNs like the system can change. We're not alone in this and we can make a difference. These help children develop self-esteem, resilience, agency, and positive action in connection to a larger community of resistors. The larger point is that both forms of messaging and the negative subtext are responses to collective trauma, one less and the other more adaptive. They are passed down through the generations and shape actions and reality going forward. Circling back to what the Ecuadorian shamans were suggesting, the quality of our dreams are affected by our experience of trauma, the meaning and assumptions we make as a result, and the PTNs we've adopted. Whether they be maladaptive or generative will determine the quality of actions and the reality we create going forward. Here's the thing. There's nothing new or exotic about trauma. Human beings have been exposed to traumatic events throughout time. Some people might even say that it's a precondition of being alive, at least for now. In an ideal world, the larger system, healthy families, communities, and societies can provide a healing context for people that are traumatized. A person who has experienced trauma can return to families and communities if they are unaffected that will lovingly contradict any maladaptive PTNs and help them somatically, emotionally process their trauma over time. Healthy communities also have a medicine cabinet full of balanced, optimistic, gratitude-inspiring, and abundance-oriented collective narratives that tell of the goodness of life on earth, getting through dark times, of sufficiency, and the goodness of people, how people are deserving of love, abundance, and joy. These healing narratives honor the self that was hurt 
and catalyze opportunities for people to be strengthened and grow from trauma at their own rate. Healthy generative narratives soothe and decatastrophize. Generative ceremonies, rituals, and stories allow for grieving, for communal witnessing of pain, and allow for compassion to arise. They reinforce a sense of worth, possibility, efficacy, and channel interpretations of events along lines that foster acceptance, integration, and transcendence. Dance, movement, humor, song, and joyful celebrations also balance out the reality of suffering. They allow for life to continue and even be enhanced after disasters have taken place. In other words, trauma is not a new phenomenon, and many cultures and communities have pre-existing institutional mechanisms to cope with and channel pain, as well as ways to reestablish a sense of hope, gratitude, and confidence. Under favorable and stable circumstances, when individuals have experienced traumas that are part and parcel of being alive, those individuals would be able to reach into their families and communities and utilizing whatever sociocultural and spiritual resources are available, heal from the trauma. Sometimes and often moving forward with scars, but strengthen. So most, most traditional societies have a great deal of innate resilience. <clears throat> However, what became clear when I worked with Native American and First Nations communities is that these social and cultural resources that help to deal with life's traumas, that help people heal and make generative meaning out of the events that happen to them, are themselves vulnerable to damage. <clears throat> so one way to think of culture is as a collective immune system. If our culture is generative and healthy, it can help us withstand trauma, can actually help us process everyday traumas and make meaning in ways that benefit us and stop us from spreading that trauma to others. But if key parts of our culture are themselves compromised, it can make things worse. It can normalize trauma and it can, it can justify us acting out abusively, victimizing others when we've been hurt ourselves and in, in a sense, infecting others with the trauma virus. In other words, extreme types of collective traumas not only wound large numbers of people, but they can distort critical sociocultural institutions like child rearing and various meaning-making institutions like religious or spiritual interpretations, damaging the collective immune system and making it easier for trauma to spread and even replicate into the future. Native American and First Nations communities experience this, an assault to them as individuals, and to their culture. It would be as though they were exposed to a pandemic when most of their doctors were either killed or suffering themselves from the disease. So let me explain what I mean. <clears throat> most know the story of how on first contact between 60 to 90% of indigenous peoples died of epidemics brought by Europeans and how many were slaughtered in war, eventually their food and way of life destroyed and how their lands were stolen right from under them and how they were forcibly removed to reservations. Many of their traditional spiritual and healing practices were banned by the federal government up until the 1960s. But probably the most devastating part of their history that most Americans aren't even aware of is that beginning in the 1890s in the U.S. and Canada, Native American and First Nations children were by law often forcibly removed from their families and taken to what was called Indian boarding schools to be educated, I should say re-educated primarily by missionary organizations or the military. 
This continued for multiple generations. We now know that in many of these schools, large numbers of these children experience the worst kinds of abuse, emotional, physical, sexual, spiritual, and intellectual abuse, sometimes at the hands of religious representatives like priests and nuns. In the first generations of these schools, almost half the children never return home, dying literally of homesickness and despair. These schools severely punished children if they spoke their native language or practiced any of their traditions. They were essentially designed to turn these children into proper Christians and supposedly civilize the savage. Indigenous peoples were shamed and repeatedly told they were inferior to Christian Europeans. Of course, this is how they learned to view themselves and how they learned to treat their children. And after several generations of this, few were left who hadn't been infected by trauma, by the toxic, disempowered PTNs, and who knew the old ways anymore. It's not surprising then that beginning in the 1930s, after several generations had gone through these, these traumas of these schools, that there was an epidemic of alcohol and substance abuse, a means of numbing the unbearable shame, grief, helplessness, despair that's part and parcel, part and parcel of disempowering PTNs. So what happens if you come from whole families or communities that have had traumatic experiences over an extended period of time when there has been, when it's been widespread and prolonged collective trauma? And what if these traumas did not just assault individuals, but damage the cultural and societal institutions? Under these circumstances, when enough people in society have experienced enough trauma long enough, not just individual narratives, but collective narratives can themselves become infected with the very virus of despair, mistrust, inferiority, and superiority that some of them were supposed to counteract and address. Common examples of these narrative subtexts include we're helpless to change anything, we will always be exploited, life is suffering. So I've been talking for a while now and have more to share, but I wanted to pause again for a moment and invite you to reflect on something. Where do you observe, where do you see these disempowered and falsely empowered PTNs active at a collective level in your own context or in politics or, for example, in religious narratives? <clears throat> Let me uh, give you some examples of disempowered PTNs just uh, in common religious doctrine. And uh, please uh, share some of your thoughts and comments in the comments section. So, um, I, uh, so let's see, where might we recognize disempowered PTNs showing up in religious narratives? Let's look at, um, uh, can you go to the slide? The previous, it's, it, it would be a slide of the disempowered narratives. Ani, can you go to the next slide, please? There we go. Thank you. <clears throat> Just go to disempowered narratives. So let's look at the theme of un unworthiness. Um, it is the fourth row down. Oh, actually, forgive me. Let's, um, let's first go to uh, the danger, the first row. How does the danger theme of disempowered PTNs show up in religious interpretations? How about, for example, the material world is corrupt or the rapture is coming, but not all of us will be saved. Let's look at the theme of unworthiness in disempowered PTNs in the fourth row. Uh, the, 
they, you know, the underlying belief is something like, I'm unworthy, pitiful, deserving of punishment. Anyone recognize this underlying PTN in the religious notion that we're, we're born sinful? And how about the notion of a savior at the end of days? It's rooted in a number of PTNs, including that we are broken and helpless and only some outside force can save us. Now, do you have any, uh, do you see any comments from the audience you'd like to share? Um, in Ireland, the mother and baby homes where women were sent to have babies as a I don't care can you now, hear me now? But let's see. Hello, Suzanne, can you hear me? Can you can you hear me now, Suzanne? Um Okay, there's yes, a bit of a lag there. Um, Thank you. So yeah, we've got quite a few examples. Um, Josephine says, in Ireland, the mother and baby homes where women were sent to have babies as it was unacceptable to be pregnant outside marriage. Um, Janice says she sees it in relation to the traveling community, also in Ireland, um, where narratives infer of inferiority and not being able to achieve. She would love to see this change. Um, Sharon says many institutions within the UK strip difference and diversity, for example, regulatory and membership bodies, schools, many employers, including within the, st the statutory sector. Um, things like you'll go to hell if you don't, don't obey God. And education for those who are neurodiverse. Mm. So there's, there's quite a few. I could keep going for a long time here, but I think that's probably enough. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Thank you. Thanks for that. Thanks for your comments and please continue to comment, um, share with each other. Uh, <clears throat> Ani, can you switch to the next slide, please? So here again are the examples of falsely empowered PTNs. Again, where do you see them appear in the collective? I'll give you an example of falsely empowered PTNs within religious doctrine. <clears throat> so look here on the third row under unworthiness. Really in this case, again, it's false worthiness. Do you see anything in religious doctrine that reflects this falsely empowered PTN of I alone am special. <clears throat> Rabbi Zalman Schechter, someone who mentored me at one point, spoke of the notion of triumphalism that all three Abrahamic faiths suffered from. Triumphalism is this belief that when judgment day comes, we, if you're a Jew, the Jews, if you're a Christian, the Christians, if you're a Muslim, the Muslims, will be the ones that the Holy One will draw close to him. We are the ones, God's chosen people to sit by his side. And the rest, well, the rest finally will be disavowed. According to triumphalism, we are the first, last, best true religion and only through devotion to the, our first, last, best prophet in our way, the true way, will you find redemption. Some of the other ways may, with great luck, get you a long way in the direction of God, but all the other ways are incomplete and lesser, lesser than ours. So triumphalism, with, this, with its suggestion of a special and exclusive connection to the divine and to truth, is in part, falsely empowered and grandiose. What do you think happens when an individual is in the throes of toxic PTNs, him or herself, and has, and has their maladaptive PTNs, whether disempowering or falsely empowering, reinforced by what is considered sacred text? So the larger point I want to make is that when we're up against but what we're up against is not just trauma to the individual, but also traumatic hooks in our culture. Healing trauma is not just about healing individuals. It requires a degree of cultural change. It requires the weeding out of toxic PTN strands. 
embedded in our various institutions. And now the various alternative forms, messaging boards that can reinforce an individual's toxic PTNs. All right, part two. So what do we do? Let me give you a story of uh, individuals who are up against not just chronic individual trauma and the resulting addiction and social dysfunctions that follow, but also individual trauma in a context where particularly the entire community was affected, as well as their culture. It was the summer of 1995, and I traveled to a remote destination called Kamloops in British Columbia, Canada, to conduct interviews with people from the little Shushwap Lake Indian band. These Salish peoples were the original inhabitants of the area before European settlers colonized the region in the mid-1800s. The reason I decided to go to the little Shushwap Lake Indian Band was that I discovered that this was a community beginning to turn itself around after generations of extreme suffering. One of the people I spent time with was a community leader named Joan Arnous, the wife of the then chief. Joan told me that life in her community during her childhood had been much the same as in many other indigenous communities. After nearly 150 years of devastating colonization, an estimated 98% of everyone over the age of 13 was abusing alcohol on a regular basis. And with that came high rates of spousal abuse, killings, child abuse and neglect, as well as high rates of suicide and accidental deaths. Adult unemployment was widespread, and the majority of people were dependent on government social assistance payment to survive. Many children in Jones community also experienced neglect, daily beatings, sexual abuse, constant hunger, and hid themselves as their parents and family members got drunk and violent. They had become accustomed to waking up to dead bodies left on stoop, on the stoop, frozen in a drunken stupor overnight. This was Jones community when she was younger. But when I met her, the community had begun to turn itself around. The little Shushwap Lake Indian Band was becoming the epicenter of healing gatherings that attracted hundreds of native as well as non-natives in the region and beyond. And Joan had become one of the leading voices of sobriety and traditional healing. When we sat down to speak, Joan described her years of drinking as a teenager herself. And now in her 40s, she was considered a respected elder and was was offering herself traditional healing ceremonies like the sweat lodge and was helping to orchestrate a healing movement in her community. So I asked her, How'd she turn her life around? She explained to me that it all began when in, her, when in her late teens, she started babysitting for a woman named Ethel from a different Shushwat band down the road. Joan regularly babysat for Ethel, but never knew what Ethel was doing with her time. There was not much happening in these small towns and everyone knew each other's business. So Joan became really curious So curious that one day she followed the woman secretly with the children in tow (laughs) to the community center where Ethel went in. Joan peered through the window and watched as Ethel set up chairs in a circle and then eventually sat all alone in the large hall in the circle of empty chairs. Later that evening when Ethel returned home, Joan got up the courage to ask her why she was paying good money to have Joan take care of her children, only to go sit all alone in the community center week after week. Money was not easy to come by. 
What Ethel said to her and continued to do week after week was what turned Joan's life around. Ethel said, I go to the community center to conduct healing circles, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. But you're wrong. I'm not alone. The ancestors and spirits are with me. One day, our people will also come and fill these chairs. You'll see. One day, the whole center will be filled with people from our communities, giving up alcohol and healing themselves. And Joan told me how that day did eventually come, and the community center in Ethel's band eventually became filled to capacity. One day at a time, step by step, Ethel's community began to heal. More and more people gave up alcohol and began to heal themselves, their children, and way of life. Ethel's dedication not only eventually inspired her community's healing journey, but also inspired radical shifts in people like Joan and through Joan, her own community. I eventually wrote over 500 pages for my Harvard doctoral dissertation on the impact of collective trauma and the antidote, including cultural renewal. Like Joan and Ethel, some of our communities are struggling in unimaginable ways. And yet Joan and Ethel, two ordinary women who faced what seemed like impossible odds, still went ahead and helped spearhead change. Of course, progress is not a one-shot deal and healing and evolution take time, but the journey had begun. It's important to note that Ethel and others like her could never have done what they did without mentors and allies outside their communities. For example, in Ethel's case, she had non-native Alcoholics Anonymous sponsors outside her own community who held her hand, provided invaluable support throughout. By the way, what if she had had an assumption or maladaptive PTM that you can never trust those others, non-Indians, and held on to it? What would have happened to her, to her community, and all the other communities she inspired? I developed what I call the ARIA framework, A-R-I-A framework, as the distillation of best practices I've learned from people like Joan and Ethel, who are courageously working to bring themselves back into balance, as well as their communities. I conduct intensives as well as multi-week long sessions teaching the principles. But like the PTN framework, I'll give you a taste of ARIA today. So ARIA stands for awareness, responsibility, imagination, and action. I have at least four principles under each of these letters, but I'll, I'll only go briefly through two of them today. So the first A in ARIA stands for awareness, awareness of yourself and the world. And two elements I'll discuss, discuss under awareness of self are aspirations and assumptions. There are many of them under um, awareness, but let, I'll just focus on these two. So becoming aware of your aspirations mean, means becoming aware of what matters to you. What are your burning desires? What do you wish to create? Working with ourselves or with our clients, we tend to focus on becoming aware of our feelings, states, and processing them. Awareness of our thoughts, our sensations, memories, with an emphasis on healing into integrating these. And of course, somatic and other processing is essential. But also important and often forgotten is accessing aspirations. One of the damages I found and I find of the wear and tear of everyday life and especially in conditions of collective trauma is that people's aspirations are stolen from them. We can come to feel helpless, hopeless, cynical about moving towards our hopes and desires. So why bother? 
It feels silly to even imagine something better. How would things have played out differently after 9-11 if Americans had moved from ruminating about the past, the Crusades, and projecting fear into the future, and instead had focused on their aspirations for positive relations with Muslim nations, as well as the rest of the world going forward? It was important for Ethel of the little Shushrop Lake Indian band to become not just aware of her pain and processing these, but also aware of her deepest aspirations. Ethel was a mother who, uh, Ethel was a mother who became ferociously dedicated to the world becoming different and better for her children than it was for her. So Ethel had to become crystal clear and dedicated to the compelling future she began envisioning. However outlandish it might have seemed that her children would grow up with a healthier mother and in a community where they felt properly nourished, cared for, and safe. Her burning desire was to give up drinking and become healthier, a better mother than her mother had been, and to inspire others in her community to do the same. And she had to get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable, even okay with feeling disloyal to many of her friends family, and elders who weren't so healthy at that time and who had told her she was betraying them by changing. She had to become more invested in the future than she was in the past, the past that she'd grown up in. Aspirations are, of course, refined in the course of moving through the other letters so that any aspirations that are shaped by toxic PTNs are weeded out and those that are generative are brought, brought to, the, to the fore. So becoming aware of your deepest aspirations is itself a process. So the first A in ARIA, awareness, asks us to become aware of what matters most to us and what our deepest aspirations are. A second element of awareness is becoming conscious of any assumptions and beliefs we have that may be inconsistent or sabotaging our aspirations. So this is about bringing people's awareness to their inner narratives and any toxic PTNs that are governing them. Some of our aspirations may have, as again, have become hijacked, infected by toxic PTNs, by notions of supremacy or inferior, inferiority. Also, we may become aware that some of the limiting beliefs and emotions we have are not our own. We've been acculturated into them. They've been handed down to us from our families and communities. We might have to grapple with issues of loyalty as some of the dysfunctions have been handed down to us by people we respect and treasure. But until we become aware of them, we can't release them. So awareness, the first A in ARIA, begins with becoming aware of oneself, one's aspirations, as well as one's limiting assumptions and toxic PTNs. There's a lot to awareness, including greater awareness of the larger world. But even becoming aware of just these two elements puts, puts you ahead of the game. The R in ARIA follows immediately from the A of awareness. It really goes hand in hand with it and refers to responsibility. This is the antidote to toxic PTNs that are all focused on blame, blaming the self or blaming another. At its core, responsibility is about recognizing that even though we may not be able to directly control outside circumstances, and we, we may not be responsible for these circumstances, we can be responsible for our beliefs, responsible for what we decide to give our attention to, for our emotional states and our behaviors, which will give us the best opportunity to create our experiences going forward. As mentioned earlier, parents who crafted narratives for their black girls that conveyed the reality of racism 
but did so in ways that were not blaming and absolutist, allowed their daughters to grapple with racism, but also equipped them to connect, have agency, and take responsibility with others for resisting and dismantling racism and patriarchy. In Ethel's case, she also had to not only become aware, but also utterly responsible for her assumptions. She had to learn to rewrite them and redirect her attention towards her aspirations and not towards thoughts of victimization and hopelessness. Of course, she needed to process her anger and grief. She would have had to learn ways to self-regulate, but she would also have had to make the decision to stop ruminating on blame and place her attention instead on taking what next steps she could towards her aspirations and a healthier life. She was able to make necessary changes because she took responsibility for adopting new, more life-affirming generative beliefs, ones that were really different than what current reality told her were possible or true. It's not that she denied what had happened to her community and what is still happening in some cases. It was that she placed more of her attention on what, on what she wanted to create. So, for example, over time, she began to adopt and live by more generative PTNs and assumptions. For example, we're not alone, but supported by seen and unseen forces. Life can be good. The past can be healed and does not determine the future. We are not damaged beyond repair and, in fact, are extremely resourceful. We have the power to affect change for the better. And we are justified to have faith in what may feel in this moment to be miraculous change. Now, those of you who are clinical psychologists or social workers already bring various aspects of awareness and responsibility to the work you're doing with others. What I found is that it's critically important to also emphasize the I in ARIA, which is imagination, which may not be utilized enough. In its most basic form, it's about opening our hearts back up to the innocence of a child to inspiration, to receiving insight, and imagining from a wide open field what it is we wish to be, have, do, and give. And in its most radical form, imagination is about developing the capacity to imagine what it would be like to already have what it is you desire and keeping your attention on that instead of the current reality. Social pioneers like Ethel initiate and facilitate shifts in their own lives and their communities, utilizing this kind of radical imagination about what could be. What I found time after time in my research on people who led the way in helping their clients and communities evolve was that they had the courage and tenacity to hold fast to a new story of possibility and beliefs that for a time appear at odds with reality. This is at the heart of dream change. This capacity for radical imagination is something all of us interested in healing, in cultural renewal and social change have to foster. This is the I and Aria. Coming together to dream a new dream for ourselves and humanity in a post-COVID world and actively stepping into it. So far, the A-R-I of Aria is mostly in the realm of aligning beliefs, thoughts, and feeling states with the desired outcome. But the last A in ARIA refers to action. You can't remain passive, but need to take inspired steps in a direction aligned with those intended desires and aspirations. In its radical form, 
One is to act and be as though what, is, what you desire has already come to pass. It's at the heart of what Mahatma Gandhi meant when he said, be the change you want to see in the world. Be and act as though what you desire has already come to pass. One of the four principles of action is to act as if. Acting as if what you desire is already here. To walk into your life acting as if in every moment. How would you stand? How would you walk? How would you behave if what you desire has already come to pass? Ethel demonstrated this principle of acting as if. She acted as if what she desired was inevitable, even when it appeared to everyone else around her that it was hopeless. Year after year, she went to the community center, most of the time alone, and conducted her healing circles alone. She didn't give up, even when things looked grim. It wasn't easy by any means. I found that people like Ethel, who went against the grain of their community members, often were subjected to abuse and ridicule by people who had been her friends and relatives. Early people like Ethel are often shunned, sometimes even receive death threats. People typically say, who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than we are? The way showers and change agents like Ethel would have to hold their ground continue to take inspired action, even when everything around them screams for them to stop. But when they persist, the world can tilt in their direction. People can't do this difficult work alone. We all need trustworthy people and groups to belong to because we can't see our own blind spots and others can help question our PTNs, our assumptions and beliefs. And we can hold our vision for one another when we ourselves have forgotten. So uh, I'm gonna take a final poll, but before we do that, Ani, can you please put up the last slide or the slide 16? For this final poll, I'm gonna read two statements describing humanity. The first is from the 1984 science fiction film called Starman. Here is this extraterrestrial in conversation with a person reflecting about human beings. He says, you are a strange species, not like any others. And you'd be surprised how many there are, intelligent but savage. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are at your very best when things are worst. The second is a 2013 quote from the British naturalist, David Attenborough. I'm sure most of you recognize him, who's a narrator for planet Earth. And he's quoted as basically saying that humanity is a plague on the Earth. The full quote is, we are a plague on the Earth. It's coming home to roost over the next 50 years or so. It's not just climate change. It's sheer space, places to grow food for this enormous horde. Either we limit our population growth or the natural world will do it for us. And the natural world is doing it, doing it for us now. All right, Neil, can you give us a second poll? Uh, I'm going to ask you, without, again, overthinking things, to take a moment and let me know which of these do you believe best describes humanity. There's, of course, no right answer. We'll just take a few seconds. So is human, you know, one is humanity is a remarkable species. It's at its best when things are at their worst. 
or humanity is a plague on the earth, or neither, or both. Let's see what the... Most of you are saying both. And there's also there uh, a good number, as you can see, of we are a remarkable species and also a number of people who say we're a plague on the earth and some who say neither. I, I really want to know what neither means. So I'd love to hear about that. Please. Uh, I, we're going to have a long Q and a session and comment session. So I look forward to hearing about that. Um, so again, it looks like the majority of people have said both. Um, so what do I believe? I'd say that both can be true. And if the Amazonian shamans are right, what becomes of us is ultimately up to us and depends on which of these assumptions about humanity we choose to focus and our attention on and emphasize. So I'm going to end this portion with the last lines of Amanda Gorman's poem, The Hill We Climb. It's the poem that this remarkable 22-year-old recited on President Biden's inauguration, January 20th. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover. And every known nook of our nation and every corner called our country, our people diverse and beautiful will emerge, battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. All right, I look forward to hearing your questions and comments. This was uh, uh, a whirlwind. And Niall, let's open things up. Hey, Suzanne. Can you hear me and see me? Hey. Um, yeah, so just want to say that was a brilliant presentation. We're getting some amazing feedback in the chat here. So just well done, first of all. Um, Thank you. I'm just going to go into some of the questions here now. We've got about 15 minutes. Um, so the first question is from Katarina. Now, do you think that pre-traumatized groups are more resilient and more capable of processing the COVID-19 experience? Or would you say they're more vulnerable? That's a really good question. In part, it depends on how traumatized they were before, meaning if they had uh, rolling traumas in the past and haven't yet recovered even from those, then they may, may not be um, more resilient. Uh, but if they had traumas that they recovered from and institutions of healing that were stayed intact or they rebuilt them, then they might be more resilient, definitely. Uh, so it just depends on the kinds of traumas they had experienced previously and what kind of experiences they've had. Okay. Um, the next question is also from Katarina. Um, how do we approach toxic PTNs in psychotherapy with an individual client? Well, it's really interesting. When I do it with, with the people I work with, it's almost enough just to make them aware of it. Uh, so... And to, you know, I, I do a lot of catching them at it uh, because it becomes like the air we breathe. We don't even realize we're 
spewing them out. I mean, I've had to do that for myself and, and uh, people have helped me as well. So it's catching people at it, showing them where they are, where it's going in a toxic direction, giving them these categories once the mind gets it too, and then processing, you have to, you know, they have to process what's behind mm -hmm. it, um, the emotions, uh, the sense of unworthiness or whatever that's coming up. So it's a, it's a combination, but oftentimes bringing their awareness to, to it and catching them at it helps them a lot and then helping them process the emotion underneath it and then giving them an alternative to that. What else could be true? These are just, these are just thoughts. There's nothing true about them just because you're thinking them <laughs> doesn't make them true. Right? So what would you like to believe and make that the truth? Um, so, and then, and then of course, it's a process of creating that trench, that healthier trench in their system. And that takes time as well. Okay. That makes sense. I haven't answered your uh, questions sufficiently. We are having, I, I gave plenty of time for questions and answers for exactly for this reason. If you want more, just ask again, please. Cool. Okay. Um, Shah, Shah has asked, how, how can we fully heal generational trauma and pain that is passed down through generations? If an individual also has to heal trauma that perhaps was given to them by an elder in their community that raised them, in order to fully heal, must we cut those parties out of our lives? Not necessarily. Uh, many people do and have done that. And I know it's sometimes is necessary. It depends again, how, how difficult and toxic those relationships are. Um, so, or it might be for time. I know uh, I've had people I've worked with who, who've mentored me, teachers I've worked with, who, for example, cut their parent out of their life for a period of time. I haven't done anything like <laughs> so drastic myself, but I know people who've done that um, because they needed to, create their own, uh, who they wanted to be outside that unhealthy system. Um, so it, it just depends on how unhealthy it is, whether you have reprieve from it. Um, and you don't have to cut people out. Some people will fall away. If they're friends that are unhealthy, as you get healthier, they'll automatically fall away. I mean, there's a period, honestly, in my own healing process where, uh, it's, it can be lonely. I mean, lots of people fall away. And until the healthier people come in, there's a period where you might just, you know, you have to live with yourself, which is actually a great experience in and of itself. But um, so again, it just depends. Do you have to cut people out? Not necessarily. But automatically, some people just fall away just because you, as you get healthier, you have very much less to relate around. And you're not getting caught up with the same dramas and the same fixations and things like that. So but again, sometimes it's necessary to, to uh, create the boundary and uh, separate yourself from others until you, and, and protect yourself from these um, toxic relationships and people and narratives. Yeah. And also, also you, you know, it, it, nothing is forever. You, you know, some people you cut out for a while, they might be inspired by who you become and want to be back in your life and you teach them, you know, they're, they're, you become the sh way shower for the family, for example. But you can't you can't do it for that reason. You do it for yourself. Um, uh, so, you know, the only person you can change, you know, this. The only person you can ultimately do anything about is yourself. So you take full responsibility for yourself, and possibly you can be, become a model for the rest of your family system and others in your community. Yep, that's a great answer. Um, the next one here is from Tiffany. I think it's really inter interesting question. Actually, she's she's asking. Uh, when recovering from trauma in, in Western societies, it happens in a therapist's office individually or maybe in small groups. And being such an individual, individualistic society, 
how do we take this work into the community so that we start to build and transform our cultures? Ah, oh, what a great question. I think that's why groups are important now in our cultures, in our Western culture. And um, I mean, even what Niall's doing right now, I really want to applaud him. It's, it's a creation of a healing group at the moment, but we can do this. You know, we have technology. I mean, in some ways, COVID has been a real boon because we realize we can get to pe- get together with people um, virtually, uh, but we can create communities, uh, online forums, the healthy ones that allow for healing, uh, healing context. Eventually we'll be, um, you will be able to be in person. Uh, so you might consider not just doing individual work, which is important. Individual work is also really important. I think sometimes you can't get to certain things without the individual work. But then there are opportunities to do collective work with groups, not just one-on-one with an individual. So that you might consider doing that, creating a, kind of a family uh, context, a feeling, a, a, you know, just like the Alcoholics Anonymous group was for, for Ethel. Uh, but in this case, imagining and creating and generative focus on that as well, not just on the, uh, the healing uh, processing of the negative. Okay, cool. Um, next one from Eliana. Uh, can promoting a trauma-informed strengths-based narrative promote a growth narrative? For instance, acknowledging the adver- adversity, uh, acceptance, the pain of the trauma, which in brackets, validity with compassion, and actual strengths generated following that trauma, such as empathy, courage, or a hopeful persistence? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely, one needs to acknowledge, affirm. I never push anyone uh, towards generative narratives. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm always watching with people that I work with, I'm always watching to see when they're ready, if there's a readiness. And I test a little test because, of course, you might, someone might spend a whole lifetime needing to process things and that's fine. <laughs> There's no like urgency to go in this direction. You know, if we process and take response, feel and affirm and uh, uh, take responsibility for our feelings, that is enough, you know, but so yes, definitely affirming and acknowledging and processing and being in that, you know, in that space of compassion and understanding for what, what one's been through and all that is essential and, and enough actually. Um, but in terms of, I mean, I'm, I mean, my background is social change. So I'm of course also interested in, okay, so now how can I, you know, support others and community? So if one wants to do social change, then the imagination also is helpful and um, group imagination is helpful in coming together. Uh, I don't know if I answered, did I miss anything from the question? Niall? No, I think, I think you covered it. Um, you might have already covered this in the presentation. I might have missed it. I just want to. I just want to clarify. Um, the aria principles are. I take it these are sequential. So you can't really be. You can't really take responsibility without awareness first. You can't really have imagination without those first two steps. And you can't really. The final one is it taking action. Is that right? Action. Is, yeah, is it, are these action. sequential steps? Yeah. To some extent, definitely. I mean, you do use a little imagination also when you're in aspirations, when you're clarifying awareness of your aspirations. I mean, so there's a little bit of overlap. You take action when you take responsibility. You're acting to, uh, you know, to change beliefs. And I mean, you know, you take actions. I journal. I do all sorts of processing, uh, you know, the various things that one does. So there's definitely, I haven't, I, I struggled with this. It is sequential in some sense, but there's also overlap. And when you're even in, in um, the action place, the final, you have to constantly, it's sort of a cycle, you constantly have to become aware, 
um, access, uh, imagination, inspiration in what you're acting on. You have to keep, when you're taking action, keep being in responsibility about, okay, what can I do with what I have with where I am now? You know, it always, sometimes it feels like I can't do anything. I'm not, I'm stuck. There's, but there's always something, some little thing. It's always, again, about taking responsibility. What can I do with what I have where I am now? And there's one step I can take. And, but it has to be informed by inspiration, by imagination. So, so there's, they, they sort of bleed into one another by the end, but it's not completely sequential, in other words. It's not linear. It's never linear, right? It's linear and circular, both. How about that? Cool, cool. Okay. And now it seems that responsibility is absolutely, uh, absolutely critical to all four. Um, in terms of imagination, do you have anything that you recommend people do to develop this faculty? Because I don't think this is something that yes. people just have. I think this is something that has to be cultivated. So is there anything you recommend people to do to develop that imagination? What a great question. Not only isn't it being cultivated, but be, it's being discouraged in many places in school you know, unfortunately, because I think we are born with that capacity. And, uh, you know, <laughs> my, there's a lot of different ways. One of my favorite ways is to be around young children because they're full of imagination. And uh, it's really fun to kind of go into their world and play with them. And, and uh, that helps with kind of loosening up the adult rigid. And, you know, I was, as I, you know, I, I was trained in academia in economics and government, you know, which is, which is, is not imaginative per se. I mean, it, it can be, but it's not necessarily imaginative. So you're really bred, you're, you're educated out of these faculties that we're born with. I think we're all born with it. So anyway, one, one is to play with, if you, if you have access to young children, to engage them and play with them, to sit and have tea parties and just loosen up some of that stuff and, and rigidity and, uh, you know, be ridiculous just be completely ridiculous. Um, you know, dress up in crazy things. Just do stuff out of the ordinary. Break your routine. If you brush your teeth with one hand, brush it with the other. You know, if you sleep on one side of the bed, sleep with your head where you used to put your feet. Like completely break your, try to break your routine up. That sort of breaks up the rigidity in our heads. But also, if you're interested in, in, in drawing or you know, poetry, like start doing a little bit of that, play, play with some of that. Now there are, there are guided imagery meditations that I, I've created and others have created. Those are great ways also to begin um, to develop more imaginative skills, just these guided meditations and help you imagine. Now don't be impatient with yourself because it's taken a while to, to work these things out of our system and to, you know, retrain us away from imagination. Um, but uh, you, you know, you just got to, it's a practice, it's a muscle you build. So that's the other thing with, when I work with clients, because a lot of people, and I included, it took me, it's taking me a long time. I'm still improving my abilities, uh, to imagine, but a meditation and visualization during meditation is really, really helpful. So it just depends on, uh, what your strengths and weaknesses are, because people have imagination in different ways. Also, they're either visual or they can, you know, they see, they see things, they hear things. So, um, uh, it's a muscle to be developed and meditation, playing with children, being ridiculous, changing your ha habits and routines. All these, these things are ways of doing that. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. We've probably got time for maybe a couple more. Um, one from Tiffany, this is probably re relevant right now because a lot of people are experiencing loss. Like how does grieving fit into the ARIA principles? 
Well, grieving is part of awareness. It's the first thing. You definitely have to become aware of your feelings. I'm not, I focus on just two aspects, the aspirations and the um, assumptions, but also, you know, affect is part of awareness. So your emotions and your feelings. And so it is definitely, you do start with awareness. That is the, the be all end all. That's the beginning point for everything. And um, so it is in some ways is linear. You definitely have to become aware. You definitely have to take responsibility and then everything else follows. And part of awareness is becoming aware of the grief that is, you know, in your body, in your feeling states and how to, um, how to address that and taking responsibility for taking care of that. So that's uh, definitely part of the, and very important part of, I, I, I dealt with grief for a long time and I still, it's almost like taking a shower, brushing my teeth in the mornings. I sort of check in. All right, here I have some grief half the time. Now I realize I've, I mean, I've dealt with grief for a long time. My family had so much grief that I was carrying that it wasn't even my own. And I'm, I'm, I'm very empathic. So I may enter a space that I haven't been in and I feel grief. That's not even my own. I can feel it and I can choose to process it or not. Um, myself. So it's like, as I said, a morning routine where I brush my teeth, take a shower and I check in, well, how do I feel today? And I check in to see, do I have grief? What am I feeling? I, I have many different at this point, different um, tools in my tool chest of what I use to process. Um, one of my favorites that's quick and easy is, uh, um, is tapping, is EFT, which I, I can't believe I'm saying this because there's a time I used to make fun of it. But I, you know, it's, and my daughter makes fun of me, you know, uh, but it's such a, it's such a simple technique that is very helpful. And um, so I, I feel the feeling and I process it out my body. It goes at this point in time, it gets easier and easier over the, over time. So <laughs> that's something encouraging for people to know. Cool. Um, out of curiosity, are you familiar with James Pennebacher's work on expressive, expressive writing and trauma? I'm not, but uh, I journal, so I don't know if that's related to the way I journal, but no, but that's fabulous. Tell me, tell us more about it's that. Just, it's basically a researcher in America. He's called James Pennebacher, and he's written, written a book called Using Expressive Writing to Heal Trauma or to Heal Emotional Wounds, and it's just yeah. all around creating, uh, making sense of your traumatic experiences and creating a creating an empowering narrative around them, and he's just, he's done some incredible work, so I think anybody that's watching this today might might be interested as well so i would i would say Thank check you, um we're living we're living in an extraordinary time because the truth of the matter is we have so many wonderful resources available to us now i mean there's so many we're it's so great this didn't exist 20 30 years ago so we, we now we're, we have a plethora of opportunities to heal and i think the more of us do it the easier it's just going to get quicker and easier but, you know, in the beginning, there was a slog because so few people were doing it. Um, so some of us created the, I like to think anyway, I like to congratulate myself for all this suffering I did. But the idea that, that those of us who came earlier hopefully created, created it, made it easier for the, for the rest to come behind us so that we, you know, we heal as much as we can and there's more to go. But, you know, it's a process. But the good news is there's so many wonderful resources and, and, uh, you know, just check what you're drawn to because what you're drawn to is probably the right thing for you. Um, so Cool. And finally, we've had a lot of questions, people asking, you know, where can they uh, learn more about the ARIA principles? And there's people asking for your email address. I think you're going to be like bombarded after this. Suzanne. Oh, I'd be so happy um, to be bombarded. Well, I put the slide down here 
www.susannabodyand.com is my website. Now, if you, there's a, there's a place on the website that says contact. So you can get to me that way. You can also sign up for my newsletter, which will tell you about, but if you do contact, you can actually write me a note and write me and, and tell me you're interested in ARIA or what you're interested. Would you like to do uh, be part of a program? Would you like to do an intensive or, you know, seven week long program, or do you want to work one-on-one? So you can ask your questions there specific, if that's okay, that would be one way to to access me is on my website. Awesome. Okay. Well, Suzanne, thank you very much for a, for a fantastic presentation. I think everybody's loved it. I certainly have. So, so thank you. Oh, my um, I also want to thank, there's been a lot of people sort of behind the scenes today as well that um, need some credit. So Annie has been, Annie is Suzanne's daughter. She's been doing the slides and doing a lot of uh, background work. So thank you, Annie. Um, the the two interpreters yes. uh, to Liz and Anne have been amazing yes. today. Thank you very much. And for Pauline for arranging that because more people are going to be able to access this because, because Pauline has, has made that happen. Um, my sister, Sinead, who's been in the background doing a lot of like emails and uh, helping with the yes. Q&A as well. So big thank you to everybody. If I forgot somebody there, I'm really sorry. Um, but I think that's it. Um, and yeah, every, everybody just thanks for tuning in. Uh, and giving up your Sunday to learn about these things. It's important. And I hope to see you all at a future, future event at some point. All right. Thank you, Niall. Thank you for creating this opportunity for all of us to be together. Really appreciate it. All right. See you guys. All right.